0: We're going to read this morning before we read from 1 Corinthians from the Gospel, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and verse 38. Let us hear the Word of God. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors are doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then we read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 6, and reading at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, how dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have a dispute about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between brothers, but instead one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters? Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Ah, uh, yeah. That's the elephant in the room. Uh, and I want to deal with the elephant in the room before we come on to God's Word, because as we read that passage, um, that second passage, I, I, there's, there's a bit that everybody went gulp at, didn't you? When it talked about men having sex with men, and we thought, oh gosh, are we going there this morning? And I want just to start off by dealing with it, by saying this, um, I'm not going to go there today. We're not going to talk about that, so Relax. Uh, But I want to say why I'm not talking about that, and it's not because I want to ignore what the Bible says. Why I don't want to address that this morning, two reasons really. First of all, it's a very sensitive subject where Christians disagree, and it's also a subject where when we begin to speak about it, we have to be aware that it's, for some folk, it's very personal, either for them or for their families. And so, if I was going to speak about it, I would need some time so that we could be We could be full, and we could be proper, and we could be sensitive, and we can't do that by simply saying a few words in an aside. And the second reason I'm not going to speak about it is this, because if we were to address that, we would spend the rest of the time focusing on that. And here's the thing, that would not be biblical, because this passage isn't about that. It's just something that Paul mentions in passing. It's not about that at all. And so, I want to be biblical enough to look at what this passage is saying to us in all of its breadth. Actually, the next passage is about sexual relationships, so we can talk about that another day, not today. Because what this passage says is important, and I want us to hear it. Let me start by putting it this way. I want to introduce you to the crisp packet test. A man walks down the road. Oops. Oops, gone the wrong way. Oop, now we're definitely going the wrong way. The crisp packet test. A man walks down the road eating a packet of crisps. He finishes the packet of crisps. He looks left. He looks right. and he drops his litter. That's the crisp packet test. Why is that a crisp packet test? Because, you see, that action has told you everything you need to know about that man's beliefs. Everything you need to know. See, here's the thing. What does it tell you when he looks left and he looks right? it tells you that he's worried about what other people think of him, isn't he? He's he's worried about will someone see and will someone have a negative opinion of me? He cares about what other people think about him. He didn't look up. He didn't look to think about what God thought of it. He looked left and he looked right because he makes decisions according not to God's standards, not even according to what right and wrong is, he makes decisions in terms of what other people think of him. That's what matters most to him in decision-making. And the second thing is, as he weighed up what to do and threw the crisp packet on the ground, it told you that the most important thing to that man in his life is personal convenience, He could have taken a crisp packet home, but he couldn't be bothered because it's a dirty packet and he doesn't want to put it in his pocket. He could have walked to a bin, but he can't be bothered because it's too far away and it doesn't want to touch a bin anyway. Now, that man might tell you that he cares about the planet. He cares about the environment. He cares about his community. He cares about the neighborhood. But his actions, the crisp packet test, tell you that whatever he says, whether he votes green or joins friends of the earth, or whatever else he does, his actions have told you what he believes, and he believes his own convenience comes first, and that's the most important thing. What we believe, really believe, comes out in what we do, because it shapes the decisions we make when we spend money, when we talk to someone, the way that we talk to them, when we make any decisions, it reveals something about us. It doesn't reveal that we are moral people so much as it reveals what we believe about the world, about the self, and about life. You know, folk will say to Christians, you should show your beliefs by your actions, won't they? Here's the more scary thought. Your actions do show your beliefs, your real beliefs. If you don't look up because you only care about other people, then you don't believe in God. If you treat the world with disrespect, it's not because your love for the planet isn't been shown in your actions, it's because you don't love the planet that God has created. That's the crisp packet test, and I want to come back to that. First Corinthians, Paul is writing about what the gospel beliefs are, what a gospel worldview is, and it's all centered around the cross. This idea that the most powerful, the most important, the most innocent man that there ever was in a world made a choice, and that choice was to be humiliated in total weakness and crucified on the cross as if he was scum. That was his choice, and that choice of God's Son, says Paul, turns the world on its head it turns all our value systems and everything upside down. And here we have a church that's tiny and weak and insignificant, just a few people, and yet Paul is saying you are to model in your actions and your love and in your teaching this upside-down logic to the world. You are to give yourself in love as Jesus has given. You're to choose a way of weakness and humiliation that God's strength might be seen in that. That's the upside-down Christian worldview of the gospel that Paul is talking about. And the problem for the Corinthians is that they, they haven't grasped that. Yeah, they come to church. They sing songs about all the things that they believe. Maybe they've got a cross on the, on the wall, and, and, and they say all the right things. But when it comes to what they believe in, it's shown in how they act and what are they doing. And what they are doing in the church is they are chasing after status. They are chasing after who's the most important. They are chasing after who's the best preacher we can put at the front of the church. They are valuing eloquence and spiritual power. They're competing. They're in cliques and they're in factions. They're looking after themselves. They're trying to have a good time. They're eating too much when they, when they come to church and they're not caring about the poor. And Paul is saying, you don't look like people that are shaped by the cross. Your actions are telling me what you really believe and what's really important to you. And the obvious example in this passage that we have just read is that some members of the church are falling out to such a degree that they're down at the sheriff court suing the other one. Now, this is the bit I'd really love to know what it was all about, wouldn't you? What was that lawsuit about? It would be great if we could just go down and get the court records or or, or, or read about it in the, in the Daily Mail and, and find out what the scandal is because we're really interested in that. We said that last week when we wanted to know all the, the salacious details of the sex scandal. But we don't know. It seems to be some sort of dispute over, over, over money or property. Maybe it was a, a business dispute to, to Christian businessmen falling out. Maybe it was somebody planted a big hedge, and their neighbor didn't like it. We we really don't know. You can use your imagination. But the important thing is that two folk are going to court, and Paul says, this dispute you have, whatever it is, it's so unimportant, I'm not going to talk about it. It's nothing. If your eyes are focused on the gospel, if the gospel is informing how you act You see, in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, one of, one of the things you find in the Jewish law, and, and it's one of the reasons that it seems to be pages and pages and pages and pages of it, is you read Leviticus and numbers and all the rest of it. And it's because the Jewish law was not just about what you did in the temple or what you did in church or what you believed, it was actually about the whole of the community's life. It, it, it regulated agriculture it regulated the welfare of the poor. It regulated how you cooked, how you lo- lived your, your lives, how you behaved with your, your, your wife and your husband, how, how you reared your children. It, it regulated every part of life. And, and, and what that was saying was actually this, we live our whole lives before God. And if we are going to be His people, it's going to touch every single part of our lives. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have the law that we have in the Old Testament. What we've got is this, that the story of Jesus should inform how we live, how we act, how we speak, down to every last crisp packet. By the way, it's why I can tell more About a congregation's understanding of the gospel and creation by looking in a recycling bin than I can by asking them how they understand Genesis. And that's a scary thought I'll tell you when I look in a recycling bin. Shaped by Jesus. And for us, that means this story of Jesus isn't about shaping our life as we sing, it's not even just about shaping our lives as we have coffee together or as we gather together as a church. It's about shaping our lives Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's about shaping our lives when we're in school and the inspectors are coming in. It's about shaping our lives when we're trying to manage that awkward child. It's about shaping our lives as we have our business dealings. It's about shaping our lives as we form presbytery plans. It's about shaping our lives as we go for coffee. It's about shaping our lives as we decide what holidays we're doing. Every part of it is lived before God and these upside-down standards of the cross. Retail, schools, entertainment, offices, every place that Christians go, shaped by what Jesus has done to change the world. You remember this, It was all the rage uh, a a few years ago that that lots of Christians were wearing uh, bracelets that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? And the idea was that in everything that you thought about, that was the question you should have as you made decisions. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus address this person? How would Jesus have me act in this place? The story of Jesus shaping the whole of life. And so, Paul takes this into this dispute in the church. If any of you has a dispute with another, how dare you take it before the ungodly? That's people who don't believe for judgment instead of before the Lord's people. It's interesting, this translation is a little bit limited because what Paul actually says, and it's clearer in the older translations, he actually says, sorry, that's fallen off the bottom of the screen, but never mind. He actually says, how dare you take it before the the ungodly people rather than the saints? Now we've spoken about this before. What's a saint? It's not somebody that wears a halo. It is you. You are all saints. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are a saint because it's what God has made you. When Jesus died for you, He made you holy. When Jesus died for you, He made you His. That's why Paul writes to these Corinthians in all the ways that they're behaving badly and says, you are saints. That's who you are, not because you behave well, but because of what Jesus has done for you. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Jesus has done this in the, at the cross. That's who you are, and you're to live in the shadow of who Jesus has made you. What does it mean to live in the shadow of forgiveness? What does it mean to live in the shadow of the one who gave his life to redeem the whole of creation? How does that inform you a crisp packet? What does it mean to live in light of the one who suffered injustice and laid down his life for people who didn't deserve it? This is the crisp packet test. Whatever the dispute was, I can almost guarantee how it left people feeling. Somebody had done something wrong whatever it was, and somebody else felt a sense of injustice. And that person was sitting there saying, I have my rights. I can't be treated that way. I need to have my day in court to be vindicated that the whole world might see I'm right and they're wrong. And we've all felt like that, haven't we? Something's happened to us, and we we need people to know that I'm in the right and they're wrong. But that's... Not what Jesus did, is it? He suffered injustice and He did not open His mouth. What is the gospel attitude? You see, what would Jesus do might also be put this way, what has Jesus done for me? And when I grasp what Jesus has done for me, what He has made me, it begins to change how I act and how I feel. There's something else about this passage, and that's this. The Roman courts of the day, we know quite about, about them because there's lots of records been left, and the one thing that Roman courts were was not very fair. They were biased in favor of the rich. You might say nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Uh, but they were biased in favor of the rich because you could bribe a judge. They were biased in favor of the rich because you could get the best lawyer if you had lots of money. That hasn't changed really, has it? But it was much more than that. Actually, Roman law prized some people's testimony over others. If you were a decent gentleman, your word was to be believed in a court. That was the legal presumption. If you were a slave, you weren't allowed to testify. If you were a woman, well, huh, That was the way the whole thing was. Money spoke, power spoke, respectable free men counted over everything else. And what Paul is saying, as he says, take it to even the least in the church, he's saying this, when you've got a dispute and we have to think what to do here, let the kingdom values of justice and grace and forgiveness that we see on the cross, let them govern it and not the way that the world thinks with its status and its injustice. And its riches. And he goes on to say this. He goes on to say this. You someday will judge angels. I think I've got this in the wrong. Yeah. You will judge angels. Now, what's this about? Here's what it's about. Step back, says Paul. I want you to understand what God's purpose is for you. And God's purpose for Christians, the big picture, is that He has a plan for the whole of creation, for the redemption of the world. He has a plan which the prophet spoke of, where righteousness would flow like rivers and justice, like an ever-flowing stream. That's what we're about. We're about transforming this world into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. And when you've got your eye on the big picture, what it's all about, suddenly the little things are put into perspective. When you've got your eye on the fact that God so loved the world, when you've got your eye on the fact that God made the world and says it's good, when you've got your eye on the fact He sent His Son, not just that we might be forgiven, but the whole world might be changed, do you drop a crisp packet? You see, the big picture if it's when our minds and in our hearts begins to change everything, and suddenly these disputes become trivial, suddenly my honor that's been impinged and I need to get vindicated suddenly falls away because of the big picture of what God is doing. I I think in terms of our presbytery planning process, that is what we need to see because the reality is, understandably, everybody is looking about the building that they love. Everybody's looking about the ministry in their area. Everybody's looking about preserving things, but if we can just step back and see, what is the church for? but the redemption of creation, the saving of souls, the feeding of the hungry. That's what we're about. Then suddenly, the things that we enjoy don't become important, and it allows us to look in a completely different way. If you understand as you you come to the bread and the wine that Jesus has done this for me, and I'm rejoicing with my brothers and sisters, then we don't worry about the fact that somebody's not wearing the right clothes, or it's not done in the right way or it's too formal, or we like it more informal, or I didn't like the hymn that was before it. All of those things melt away when our eyes are on the big picture. And here's the other thing that Paul says in this passage, and we can miss this. He says, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Instead of cheating and wrong, you do this to your brothers and your sisters. See, here's the thing. Roman social order was very well-defined, men and women slaves and free, rich and poor, young and old. There were structures and there were orders. And here comes the gospel which says, in this church, Jesus Christ has died for you, and you are brothers and you are sisters. Now, you may not have a good relationship with your brother. I have, I'm I'm, I'm grateful to God, a great relationship with my brother, and I would do anything for him. Some of you got siblings like that? They'd do anything for you? Pretty much. I know you fight with them, but yeah. Now, if you've got a brother like that, then you know that that brother attitude changes everything. And here's the amazing thing that we take for granted when we hear this brother-sister language, is that when Paul used that for the first time in the church, he was saying to a slave and a master, you're brother and sister. And, of course, relationships change how you act, how you think, how you feel. You're a family. Do families sue each other in court? Well, some do. But suddenly it begins to change the way that we think. And so, this passage reminding the believers, you are saints that will judge the world someday. you judge angels. Think about that. That's who God has made you someday. You'll reign over this whole creation in His name. You'll shape it. You'll be His glory, His delight. That's what He's made you for. You're sanctified in Jesus. And when you focus on all those big things, suddenly He looks them in the eye and says, so that lawsuit? Really? We are to be transformed by the gospel until every part of our action is reflected by it. You know, this is the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion says this, do the things that God has told you and live your life differently and God will give you a reward, right? Christianity says the opposite. It says, God in Jesus Christ has made you this and given you this. Now, how are you going to live your life? We love and act because of what Christ has done for us. What do people who judge angels do with a crisp packet? What do people that Jesus died for do with a grudge? What do people who are made brothers and sisters do with gossip? What do people who Jesus gave His life for do when it comes to giving of themselves, of their time, their talents, their money for the work of the church and for everything else? And by the way, actually the problem with time, talents, and money for the work of the church is this. If every part of our life is about Jesus, it's not about how much I give to the church. It's about what do I do with every other penny in every other decision because it's about the whole of my life. How do people who have been called by the living God respond to the demands that are made on them? How do you respond to an asylum seeker if you follow the one who came as a refugee into a world that rejected him? This passage blows everything away and asks us to focus on Jesus and His cross and let it shape everything in your life. Think just now about the decisions that you have to make this week and think about what it means to make them in the light of the cross.